retreat happening at the beginning of next month, uh, March um, 4th through the 6th. And the marriage retreat is titled, This Is Us. And that's a TV show. For those of you who've watched it, it's like a hyper-emotional TV show. Um, And our guest speakers are going to be John and Arlene Marikowski. Marikowski. Um, They serve out there in New York, in the Manhattan region. And they're going to be doing our whole workshop. Funny enough, I actually went to their workshop a couple of years ago. And it it was awesome. They, they did it in Miami. It's the same exact thing I heard. So I was like, all right, I appreciate it then. Three years later, I appreciate it now, man. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so um, I want to encourage all of us, if you register before next week, Friday, you will be put into a raffle, and you may get your hotel for free. If you're not married, you can still put your name in there, and you could give that hotel to a married couple. So you, you could be a blessing in that way. <laughs> but uh, there's also an online option as well. Any questions about the retreat? Before? It is here in Portland. It is at a... Yes. Yes. Whoever said Weston Hotel, you are absolutely right. So I'm excited about it. Look forward to fellowshipping there. There's an online or a virtual option as well. Those of you who have not been to marriage retreats, I, I don't know if anyone has gotten married in the last two years, COVID marriages, you haven't gone yet, it's fired up to go. And I'm, not, I'm talking about, come on, come on, I see you. All right. <laughs> Let, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father God, we come before you in the name of your son. We ask that we could study your word, that your spirit will be with us as we open up your word as we understand your son, as we understand this story that you've given us, this story that we get the privilege and honor to be a part of, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would stretch us in this short time together, help us kind of stretch our imagination, see your story for how beautiful it is and how life-transforming it is and, and, and powerful it is, Lord. And I pray that this isn't just this season, but we could start really thinking about how can we tell this story to a world that's waiting for some good news, Father. Again, Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we pray to see you in Son's name. Amen. Okay. All right. How do I expand this? You know, that's the part of the movie you're not supposed to see. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you were getting into that graph. All right. So we've been talking about telling the story, and we're kind of going a 5,000 feet view of the the, the story of the Bible. And in the next two weeks, I want to bring us all the way back and tell it in a more concise way, but I just wanted to give an overview. And I think all the lessons are being recorded and have been recorded on, um, on our website. So I just want to encourage all of us, when we do the condensed version, if there's anything that you feel like, I'm not following, I don't really go back and listen to the longer version of that portion, and then you could kind of condense it. Because sometimes you got to know a lot to tell a little. Like those of you who've preached or shared on a Sunday or have done a message, you realize you put in probably like eight, ten 
seven hours into a study and then you only share for 30 minutes. Like there is a lot happening and you were condensing. In the same way, telling this story, I want you guys to share it in 10, 15 minutes, but we have to go the long way so you know what parts to share and how to be able to engage if someone asks you questions. So that's the goal. All right, so we are still telling the story. We're gonna go to a quick recap. So a worldview will answer at least four questions. Why are we here? What's our problem? What's the solution? Where we're going? Why are we here? God, what's our problem? Separation from God, what's the solution? Jesus, where are we going? New creation. So creation has a competitive, uh, a competitive creation story. So in Genesis, the world was made good. God made everything good. In other creation narratives, the world was born out of violence. Kings and queens were made in the image of God, but not necessarily the, the, the common folk, if you will. So there's a competitive creation story that's happening in Genesis that back and forth throughout the entire scriptures, they're kind of alluding to these things. But everyone here was made in his image. And what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Now we're at Jesus. It's to reflect the person and character of Jesus. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Because I know we like that. All right. Creation was designed for good. Good. Sometimes it can feel like, you know, you have a snowstorm, and you're like, that's not good. There's some crazy stuff happening out west with the, sm the fires and the, the smoke and everything. That's not good. But that actually is a product, theologically speaking, of the fall, all of that. I don't know about the snowstorms, but I definitely know about the fires. I, I don't, but I don't know if God, yeah, I got nothing to say about the snow other than amen. All relationships were in, in the right. Adam and Eve were connected. We were connected to creation. We were connected to God. Everything was at one. And so there was no need for atonement. We were completely together. And so in the beginning, God gave Adam and Eve one task to govern the world as his partners, as his partner. It wasn't just one task, but it was like the task of governing the world. All right, then the serpent introduces the million-dollar question. Do you guys want to be like God? Because God doesn't want you guys to be like him. And what does it mean to be like God? To know right, to know good and evil. There's a lot of things it means to be like God, all-knowing, omniscient, all-powerful, but really at the core is to know good and evil. And they took the fruit. Then they went into exile, Adam and Eve, and then Israel later will go into exile. And so sin is human activity contrary to the will of God. So we've covered this in the last three classes. And so death ends life in all of its goodness, and it is a, and it is a consequence of the fall. So God chooses Abraham and restarts this whole project. He's looking for a partner, and he's like, Abram, Abraham, you are my guy, and through Abraham, his family, then his lineage, etc. Then God chooses Israel, they become his partner. Israel's task was to govern as priests before God, and then Israel chose a king who would represent God to the people and people to the God, and David felt, and every king afterwards. All of this we already talked about, I'm just giving us a quick review before we bring in Jesus. And then it's a blank screen. And it's still blank. Why is it blank? Okay. 
Oh, uh, how do I get, uh, there's supposed to be an image here, but it's not showing. How do I do that? You said what? I can show you the image on my, it is on there, it should be. So this is what it's supposed to be here. Is it because it's an older model? It's probably because you had it in PowerPoint and this is Google. <sighs> Sorry, bro. Blessed quietness. <laughs> Can we see if we can open it in PowerPoint? Uh, yeah. All right, we're going to take a two-minute fellowship break. Don't. <laughs> you know, no one judge what's on my email account, anyone? Just saying. Thanks. <laughs> Imagine if it is something crazy. <laughs> it's still, it should be there because that's exactly what I said. Maybe if you just open it on uh, PowerPoint. PowerPoint's not on here because it's a Google. But this is like the images of it. Let's see. Um, is that, what, what is this in? PowerPoint? Yeah. That's usually what I open in here. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, let's... I don't know. Maybe if you download it. And then it's gonna open up in PowerPoint. How many different places you are part of the party of the party of the party of the party of the All right, fellowship break over. I worked on this drawing all day. I had to show you guys. <laughs> don't, don't, don't hate on me, Lourdes. I, I'm a finance major. I'm not an artist. So here, here's the visual of what I was talking about. I'm sharing this visual only because I really want us to kind of think about how can we share visuals with our friends. We are visual learners. Some of us learn simply through hearing, like, um, like lessons, like didactic lessons, but a lot of us really learn visually, which is why things like Bible Project is taken off because they can kind of show you what the scriptures are talking about. And so when we think of Genesis 1, it was designed for good. Adam and Eve, that's my Adam and Eve right there in the middle, holding hands, unified. That little circle around them is the presence of the good Lord and all of creation, unity all across the board. This is the fall. Oh, man. Oh, no. Ooh, it doesn't look good. It doesn't. Totally good <laughs> it doesn't look good. Understand? <laughs> so there's this unity. That's the little line riffing between Adam and Eve. Really, it, it, it comes all of creation. Creation now is one of our enemies as well, like the ocean becomes the grave, earthquakes, all this other stuff is a product of the disunity that the whole world is experiencing. 
So this unity between us and God, this unity between one another, and this unity between creation. And so Abraham and his family is called out to be a counter, a counter community where they become what we just saw on the previous slide. But Israel fails in that mission. And so the initial rescuers now need rescue. Like Israel was intended to rescue the world and be a light and show them what it means to be in partnership with God. And they, kind of, they need a rescue too. And so, but God is faithful and his plans were not thwarted. And I wouldn't even call Israel, I mean, Jesus a plan B. He was always plan A. This is deeper than what we have time for. Come on. That's the cross. That was fired up. Okay, we're done with the animation. Thank you. <laughs> it actually really does encourage me. I don't, if you guys are probably being sarcastic, but that did encourage me. Um, amen. Amen. But Jesus comes into the world, into the broken world, and we know kind of the story, but we're going to try to figure out how can we tell this story to our friends, and I think it's important that at this point of our, our time together, we're going to open up more for discussion. What is the gospel? What does that mean? What does that mean? Is Tom Brady retiring good news? If you're a Buccaneer hater, he's happy. It's good news for him. <laughs> Okay, so we got some dispute about whether his retirement. What is good news? Would you be able to speak up a little bit, Heather? An encouraging message or a message that brings hope? Okay, when Jesus says, I'm coming to bring the gospel, what, what, what is he doing? What is his good news? Kingdom is here. Unpack that for me. What is a kingdom? What are you talking about, brother? So, so some some aspects of the kingdom is that there's there's a king in a kingdom. So Whoa. Someone with authority. There are borders in a kingdom. So there's 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 land there that people have. There's people inside the kingdom. So citizens. There are standards in the kingdom, uh, and there are benefits to being in a kingdom. There are service that the king does for the citizens. Powerful, powerful. And so he is making an announcement about a kingdom, Fred. Well, and, it, and in that kingdom, there would be redemption from our slavery and our captivity by Satan. Okay. That we could be, that there now is a path, a, a ransom, that there will be a ransom for, for us that allows us to be redeemed. Okay. Okay, so the gospel, at its most basic, this is a phrase that Roman kings would use. This was a phrase that Greek kings used is an announcement, right? So if I said it's 43 degrees outside, is that debatable? No. If we have metrics to measure it, it's not debatable, right? I'm like, it's 43 degrees outside. So when Jesus was announcing the kingdom of God was here, he wasn't saying, hey, I have an opinion. He was making an announcement. It was a declaration. It was like, this is reality. 
And when you read through the New Testament, they, they kind of operated as if it was reality. And so his, it was an announcement. And when we think of announcements, we usually don't think, well, that's good for you. It's, an announcement is an announcement. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like if I said this is it, then this is what the announcement is. <clears throat> and so the Roman empires would come, the Roman emperors would come and say, hey, Augustus Caesar just defeated Mark Anthony. Good news. Pax Romana, peace in Rome. I'm in charge. It's good. When Alexander the Great was marching through the known world, he was announcing good news. His empire has come to give people Hellenism and all the benefits that come with that education, gymnasium, et cetera, et cetera. He was making an announcement. And so when Jesus comes and announces his kingdom is coming, that's in opposition to a kingdom that already exists. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we hear the message and we're in 2022, a lot of us instantly think heaven, like, oh man, good news, I could go to heaven one day. Initially, most people would have heard, oh, he's setting up something opposite of what's already in place that Caesar already has. You're like, whoa, all right. Which is why he galvanized a lot of people. Which is why a lot of people went out to John in the desert. Who goes out to anyone in the desert unless something big is about to happen? So John is out here saying the kingdom's coming close. You guys got to get baptized. You got to kind of get reinitiated in this covenant community because the king is about to show up and he's about to bring the kingdom. And so everyone's getting fired up. And then when Jesus gets baptized, spirit descends and you're like, this is my son whom I love. It's like, wow. And then he starts announcing this announcement. And so the kingdom is the feature of that good news. But indirectly, the kingdom points to Jesus because he's the bringer of the kingdom. He's the king of the kingdom. Christ means anointed, and that's the same word that they used for David when they talked about king. And so the good news is the announcement that Jesus is king of that kingdom. Now, the million-dollar question that we all should be asking ourselves is what kind of king is he? Like, what sort of king is coming? Is he like Augustus, Octavian? Is he like that guy, where if you disagree with him, you die? Is he like Mark Anthony, who offered the Romans one sort of alternative and it didn't went out in, in battle? Like, what kind of king is he? Which is what the gospel writers go to painstaking details to map out what sort of king he is and why his kingdom is good news. All right, and so that's what Paul did. He went around the known world being, being a herald. Like, good news, I got a king here. This is why he got in a lot of trouble. When Jesus was crucified, king of the Jews, that wasn't like they, they were mocking him on one level, but that was he was a treasonous king of the Jews. Like, Jews already had a king, Herod. He was a puppet king, but a king nevertheless. And they, had, and they were under the reign of Claudius Caesar at the time. If you mention the good news, most people today think that you're talking about an option. You might like to take it up if you feel so inclined. You know, a lot of times when we talk about our relationship, especially in a pluralistic society that we're currently in, I believe in Christianity, you believe in whatever. And so we wanna make sure that we're not offensive and everything. But when they announced it, Paul, Paul went into Athens and all these other places and he spoke kindly, 
passionately, but with deep conviction that what you're worshiping is not the creator. Which is challenging in this age of pluralism. And it's because we have a history of the church hurting people. There is documented research of the church doing, doing things in the name of Jesus hurting people. So we're in a unique situation right now where a lot of times, and I know I've been guilty of it, ah, yeah, that's what I believe instead of like, nah, I mean, honestly, Jesus isn't communicating, like that tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. I'm not debating that. There, there's a reality in which this is what it means to follow him. And so I want to ask you guys, I mentioned some things that made it challenging for me, but what are some things for you guys that make it challenging to speak this announcement as it's supposed to be spoken? Like, this is an announcement. Like a doctor could say, Steve, you have cancer. I, I debate that. I get a third, fourth, fifth, sixth opinion, I still have cancer. I can still debate it, but everyone else around me says I have cancer. Does that make sense? Like, what prevents us from speaking about this announcement that Jesus, King of the kingdom, the risen Lord, is a, is a reality? What, what prevents us? Or what has prevented you, potentially? I think being questioned on how I know for certain that, you know, my source document for learning about this kingdom uh, is what it claims to be. Um, I feel like I'm at a place where now I feel like I, you know, I can reasonably well defend myself, but I don't know how convincing I'd be right now. And I think for the majority of my discipleship, uh, what would hinder me from going out and sharing with people is, okay, well, how do you know that you know, the Bible is actually God's word? Mm. That question would, would stun me from saying, okay, well, I'm, like, you know, the gospel is a fact. It's, you know, it's a declaration. Why do I trust that this is a declaration and it's not just an option? That's a great thought. I think we live in a society now that very much um, wants you to accept everything. And if, if you don't, if you're not tolerant of every everyone and every belief, then you're kind of labeled as a narrow-minded, um, prejudiced in different ways. You know, like so. I think that with me, um, like I'm just thinking about with my colleagues at work. I think that I was always so careful with how I shared my faith to make sure I wasn't coming across that I was dogmatic in that, you know, even though I felt strongly, um, I tried to live by my example too, um, because I felt like that spoke louder than just words. For sure. Yeah, it is. It's, it's extremely um, difficult to communicate in today's day and age. And that's why I think looking at Jesus is really important because I think sometimes we could communicate how we were brought up. Some of us are brash, man. <laughs> we're like, take no prisoners. But if you, if you try to imitate what you see in Jesus, I think there'll be different points where people may disagree with you, but I, I don't know if they'll ever accuse you of anything other than what they've accused Jesus of. And Jesus was never accused of being manipulative, narrow, etc. He's accused of a lot of things. 
and you might get a call those same things. He says the student is not above their teacher. So they might call you Beelzebub. And then you reply, your mama. <laughs> don't call anyone mama Beelzebub. I don't like Lord of the Flies. How is that like an insult? But I guess. Uh, but yeah, so I think that's the one thing that makes it difficult. What Connor mentioned too, which I think is really important. When we read the four gospels, a lot of times we're like, this is the story. But the way they read the four gospels and subsequently afterwards, they read the four gospels as eyewitness accounts. So if we read a case, let's just say um, there's a big investigation happening right now with the January 6th committee. They are trying to get eyewitness accounts of who was in the room, what happened. They're like, this person was here, this person was there. And that's why their testimony is important. The four gospels, the four writers of the gospels, they're not just like storytellers, they're witnesses. Does that make sense, guys? Yeah. That these guys are saying, I have seen, or I have, I'm like Luke in particular, I'm one or two people removed from the story and I've gathered it and here is my evidence. So they're presenting a testimony here. And I think that's really important that we understand that they're sharing a testimony. And they're very detailed in that sharing of the testimony. I think the other thing that could be challenging to share this too is, at its core, some of us may not even know for certain that this is, that when Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that he actually is the way, the truth, and the life. They're like, maybe there gotta be other ways, other truths, other lives. Like, this is awesome, Christianity is good, but it's good for me, but it's not good for anyone else. What if I was born in Saudi Arabia? Would I still end up being Christian? Like, what fairness is that with God? And we could start getting a lot of meta questions. And I think all these things can incline us to say, okay, it's, it's one option among many. And so let's look at two passages in particular. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. Can I get a volunteer to read this whole passage? 1 Corinthians 15. It's, it's a mouthful. Go for it, Connor. Yeah, the entire chapter, mouthful. First Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as the one abnormally born. For I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you have believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. 
More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. He did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized? What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon has um, the moon another, and the stars another. And stars differ from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, yet it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a spiritual body, there is all if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual the spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And then after after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 
nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with, the, with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the, moral, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that has been written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Excellent job, brother. Um, so as you guys were reading through with him in 1 Corinthians 15 and we're talking about the gospel, what are some things that Paul speaks about? Now let me tell you something that's really important here. Subtitles, chapters, and verses did not exist. So you kind of really got to follow thoughts, right? And I think what, what has happened over the years is one subheading is the resurrection of Christ and the other resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body. And it can kind of throw us off and, 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 and ruin the train of thought that Paul's trying to help us follow. Does that make sense? But with that being said, I, I, I'm going to put before you, and you could go back and research and be a Berean. This is one long thought he's communicating here in chapter 15. This is not four thoughts. He's trying to communicate one thought. But with that in mind, what are some things that stood out to you as we were talking about the gospel, as I was sharing about the announcement and everything else? Okay. Nice. Anything in here alarmed you? Yeah, for sure. I think, imagine Paul here fighting a wild beast in Ephesus, and we save him, and we help him, and we're like, bro, what are you doing? Why are you fighting for? I'm trying to preach the gospel in this city. Like, what? 
this thing almost killed you, bro. <laughs> like, what's going on? And he's like, oh, I don't even really believe this. I'm just faking it. You're like, that's even more ridiculous. But Paul is saying, I fought these. Now, I think the wild beasts were actually people. I don't think he was talking about an actual animal. And I got reason for that, but we could talk about that in private. But let's just say it was an animal. How about this verse? Verse 26. Um, 25, I mean. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Who is the enemy of Jesus? Isn't he the friend of sinners? This imagery of Jesus can make a lot of people feel uncomfortable. There's a school of theological thought that's like, we're done with the Apostle Paul. We don't like the way he maps out who Jesus is. We like the four witnesses, the Apostle Paul. You turn Jesus into your image of the Hebrew God. But what do we think about verse 25 when he's like, I'm going to put all your enemies under my foot until all the enemies are put under his foot. Praise God. <laughs> She's a little dark, but that's okay. <laughs> I think it like it fights against like so hard the image of Jesus of this like peaceful Jesus like sixties look at me like holding a lamb and like it's like, you know it's still it's still very much out there like this idea of like Jesus is weak mm-hmm. you know and um, and I think sometimes like in situations whether they're personally or like socially or just like looking or listening to the news or just seeing things or even with like my family or people, like, I can feel powerless. And I think something about seeing how powerful God is, like that imagery of Jesus, like to me is encouraging because God is good. Mm. Um, you know, so I like that imagery. Um, it kind of bucks against, I think, like this idea of like, and I think even sometimes that I, I hear people, you know, just casually like how they talk about Jesus. Okay. Fred? Yeah, I think, I think what you're sharing is, is really important. Let's look at this middle section again, and let's, let's listen for a name, because that's really important as we think about telling this story. Let's listen for a name. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn... Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. 
then the end will come when he will hand over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominions, authorities, and powers. For he will reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. And then it goes on to say he didn't put the Father under his feet. What person do you think Jesus is talking about here? That Paul's talking about? Who? Paul is talking about Jesus, but who are the enemies? And? Maybe, definitely. I need Kind of. Look at verse. Look at verse twenty-four. He mentions who the enemies are. So, the enemies here is going to destroy are the dominions, the authority, and the powers. These are all different names that we have for infrastructures. Does that make sense, guys? Yeah. That these are infrastructures that have set themselves up against God and his purposes. So these infrastructures that set himself up against God and his purposes, Christ is like, I'm bringing them all down. Yeah, and, but it's not like, think about when you think of evil, name 10 people right now that we have to stop to stop all evil. You couldn't stop at 10. <laughs> you just have to keep going down the list, right? Jesus was able to be in close presence with sinners, but he wasn't ever able to sit in the, in the position of power, whether with the temple, whether with Pilate, because these powers have set themselves up as entities. And this is where the spiritual warfare, where Paul says, my battle isn't against flesh and blood. This is where spiritual warfare comes in, and Christ is like, I'm going to bring all of those things down, all these things that have set himself up. Now, the challenge is most of us in here, one degree or another, are, and we're going to transition to the, our allegiances to some of these powers, even at a subconscious level. Yeah. We just don't realize it because we're swimming in the water. It takes someone like Leone to come here and say, you Americans are like this. <laughs> and you're like, are we? Yeah. Like, you clearly see this teaching of Jesus. Why do all you guys ignore it? You're like, really? Yeah, you just read it. Look, you just read it. You just went over it. Yeah. And we're like, oh, there's a power, authority, and principality here that is preventing me from honoring and following Jesus. This is not me saying that those who are disobedient and perpetuators of these things will not be held accountable. But these systems in particular is what Paul is getting at. Does that make sense? Yeah. That does not mean there's no individual accountability for your sin and you will be called account to it. I'm just saying when he's talking enemy, he's primarily talking about the systems in place that make it harder for us to be one people, one with creation, one with one another. Let's go to Thessalonians. First or second? First. That's a great question. That's the best question I heard all night, Heather. First or second? All right. Um, we're just going to read verse 9 of, what chapter? of chapter 1. Another great question. Heather, you're, you're back to back. She's getting the gold started. Yeah. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Yeah, Thessalonians. I was looking at Corinthians. See, I'm messing up. You guys are holding me accountable. All right. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. 
For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he rescued from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Okay. A lot of times, I think we think becoming a Christian is transitioning religion. At a macro level, that's true, but at a micro level, Jesus was persecuted and the early church was persecuted primarily because switching gods meant you switch nations, switch countries, switch allegiance. Does that make sense? So part of us becoming Christian is whatever the world and the culture is doing, we no longer do that, we follow what Jesus says. And so we always walk in a awkward position in this life. I'll use American politics in particular. If the Democrats are like, let's feed homeless people, what do we say as Christians? Absolutely, let's feed them. They're made in the image of God. If the Democrats are like, let's pass a law that kids five years old could snort cocaine. We're like, absolutely not. They're made in the image of God and they can hurt themselves. And now all the liberals hate us because we don't want kids at five years old doing cocaine. The conservatives, let's just say that they're like, hey, what about the immigrants? We're like, listen, we understand that nation state cannot run great if we let everyone in, but whatever, we're going to try to figure out how to love everybody. So if you're asking me what I think as a follower of Jesus, I'm always going to practice hospitality because that's what I see in Jesus. Now, is that the best policy? That's why you won't elect me, and that's why I'm not going to run either. But on the other end of the spectrum, when it comes to big corporations being able to squeeze people, and we're talking about even allowing certain, like I, I give an example with, um, in the 70s, those big companies that were allowing certain lead into poor and lower income communities, and a lot of conservatives supported those companies. But as Christians, if we find that out, and we're like, we gotta stop that because that's hurting those children growing up in those communities. They're growing up now predisposed to cancer, et cetera, et cetera. We wanna protect them. So we're always walking in balance. That, this isn't me advocating you voting. This is me advocating at varying points where the world is gonna be like, wow, you're behind us. And at varying points they're gonna be like, you are the scum of the earth. And that is Jesus' ministry in a nutshell. On, in Luke chapter seven, when he praises John's ministry, I think it's chapter seven, verse 29. You know, we're, 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 we're our fellowship, so let's go. Chapter 7, verse 29. Let's make sure I got it right. Because someone's going to go back and be like, that, bro, that was the wrong chapter. 729. Yeah, Luke chapter 729. He's talking about John the Baptist's ministry. That's, at least that's what we should be looking at. Yes, I got it right. All right, Luke chapter 7, verse 29. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. Now look at verse 30. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. That's, that's the message we preach in Anusa. Some people are fired up. They're like, yeah, this is amazing. Other people are like, I reject that purpose. We live in that tension. I think part of the reason we get inclined to say opinion, some of us, if you're like an Enneagram 9, if you're into the Enneagram, the Enneagram 9s are like, I hate when people don't like me. Jesus' ministry is filled with that tension. 
the Enneagram 8 are like, we need to stuff Jesus down everyone's throat. That's just not the way. The Enneagram ones, I, I don't know I'm big into the Enneagrams, but I know enough people are into them, so every time someone's always asking me, so what are you, bro? What are you? <laughs> I'm an eight. <laughs> you know, and then the Enneagram ones are like, I had it right the whole time. They're like, I was right the whole time. Didn't I tell you all we had to do was this? <laughs> so, you know, they have a friend who's doing something. Like, if you would have followed Jesus, you would have been good. But a lot of times we're concerned about options because we're, we're, we're concerned that people might dislike us. And Jesus is like, woe to you when all men speak well of you. There is a component of my life that will be offensive to someone because I follow Jesus. But I should not be offensive to someone. Does that make sense? So I shouldn't be like, oh, you're a jerk and you're going to burn. As my wife would always say, I got no heaven or hell to put you in. I, I don't, God makes those ultimate decisions. I preach what he tells me to preach, but where you end up on the last days, that's outside of my jurisdiction. I'm praying that I hear well done done and faithful servant. And we're kind of working on that level. But, the, but if I raise my child to be kind to whoever our nation's new enemy, Russia, it looks like we're going to get into a tussle with and I raised Stephen to say, we don't talk bad about Russians in this household. We don't treat Russians negatively in this household. And if Russians are being persecuted in Maine, we're going to provide a space for them to be welcome and in fellowship. And everyone hates him and hates me for it. I'm like, that's part of it, bro. That's a part of following Jesus. They're going to hate us because we chose kindness. And that's okay. We're not, we're not disloyal to America. We're faithful to Jesus. And, and, but it's really important that this is kind of what we're telling people, what they're signing up for. So in First Thessalonians, they switch their allegiance. I'm going to try to be the best American citizen possible. But the day America says, Steve, now nah, grab an AK and go kill some people. Jesus, Lord. Now, there's actually stuff we could do here to prevent all of us from going to war. Did you guys know that? We could sign up as uh, conscientious objectors. Did you guys know that? I don't know if we did that as a church yet. But we could. But even if we didn't, I still will say, Jesus, Lord, and I'll serve my time in jail. Stephen will come visit me. He was like, Dada. <laughs> my mom would be so disappointed, but that's okay. Jesus' mom was disappointed with him. All right, so we're, we're, we're going to transition to the next slide. So what is Jesus like? He's a revolutionary without gun or steel, but instead with love and sacrifice. Isn't that crazy how much Jesus changed the entire world and he never, like, beat anyone up like the closest he got to it and I think some Christians need to repent a little bit some people love the flipping table Jesus with the whips he did that in one scene that can't that can't paint your entire picture of Jesus there's so many other pictures that's there and we can't ignore it but some I think some Christians are just too in love with the flipping table Jesus and I would say this too when you live sinless and faithful to God you can flip a table but if you got a beam in your eye, be careful with what tables you flip, because someone's going to flip one on you. So you just have to be very humble with your, your flipping. Okay? We're not flipping unless you're fired up. You could tweet that. We're not flipping unless you're fired up, if anyone's tweeting. <laughs> I'm talking about tables, by the way. Um... I digress. Now we're all distracted. <laughs> all right. 
what what is the what is the preeminent image of Jesus in in your head and would you say of your neighbor's heads? Like when they think of Jesus, what comes to mind? Or when you think of Jesus, what comes to mind? I think a shepherd is like a shepherd. I mean, obviously because of the imagery, but like a shepherd cares for a flock, but is stern with the flock as well to guide them. Yeah, shepherd. I know as I engage with a lot of other Christians, philosophy, philosopher, like he's like the, the epitome of the Zen. You know, he's like non-hurried, resting, balanced. He does his spiritual disciplines. A lot of Christians, that's kind of the image of Jesus that's being drawn up. And there's a lot of that that's true. A good teacher. On TV, I don't interact with these folks, but on TV, there's a lot of people who think of Jesus as William Wallace. Do you guys know who William Wallace is? Freedom. They see Jesus, and they're like, he's the epitome of freedom. Like, he's going to get out there, and he's going to make sure we get complete freedom. And it's funny how freedom always lines up with the political values of whatever they think freedom is. But there are some people who think of Jesus like that. There are some people who think Jesus is like John Wayne. He goes around smoking the bad guys. Like, hey, man, Jesus is out there. You're doing what? He got a lightning bolt for you. And if he don't get you in this life, next life, he's going to burn you. Yes. And then we got the hipster Jesus. You know, the one who's like, listen, if they were growing weed the way we're growing them now, I would light one with you guys. Instead of wine, we would have been smoking a joint together. Do this in remembrance of me. Passing the joint. Like, we have all these images of Jesus that comes from TV shows, that comes from our culture. And so... We have to be very careful, and this is why a devotional life and a community life is so important, because we'll draw up Jesus in our head. That's a very natural human thing to do. You start to project yourself onto the person you want to follow. Like, it's easy for me to read the Bible and find a Jesus that doesn't convict me of my sins and convict me of the sins of, say, Julian, because I'm upset with Julian. So I find all the areas where Julian isn't like Jesus. Like, you see? You don't read that. But then when it comes to the areas I'm falling short, I'm like, ah. Jesus says, he without sin, let him cast the first stone. Come on, sister, let me be. Like, I, I, we all created Jesus in our image. And so community helps us. So if I'm in fellowship with Tim and Tim is like, bro, that doesn't sound like Jesus. I need to re, re oh, okay, okay. I was kind of off kilter a little bit. And then I need to be in scriptures consistently. And so Jesus accomplished his kingdom, not through guns and steel, but instead with love and sacrifice. It's nuts. It's insane how far the gospel has gone in the first two centuries without having to pick up a sword, without having to change one law. The Christianity of the first two, two and a half centuries did not change one law. They did not change one law in the Roman Empire. And it radically transformed the entire world. There are number of bureaucrats and senators who are complaining not that they're breaking any laws but then they are breaking laws but they're breaking laws to follow Jesus they were complaining it was a radical world I think today we've been bombarded with too many things like we're swimming in such a the powers that we're talking about, the authorities and dominions have such a strong grip on our imagination it's really hard to even realize where to swim like, we, we have to be mindful. So how does Jesus do his ministry? 
This is what we want to imitate, and this is the story we want to tell. Jesus healed people, loved people, spoke the truth. He had hard words for the Pharisees in Matthew 24. But you know what? There are so many interactions between Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew 24. There's about a year and change before he shares Matthew 24. Some of us see religious people and instantly we want to blaze them. Sometimes you're the religious person. But there's so much work in between Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew 24 when he does those walls. We have to be patient and work with people. Jesus is sitting in the home of Simon, a Pharisee, and this woman who's a sinner. We don't know what sin she did, but she's a sinner. But he's engaging. He's connecting. Jesus worked with the centurion, this Gentile, this outsider of the community, and was like, hey, you got great faith. Jesus worked with the Syrophoenician woman. He forgave. Money had no hold on him. One, one teacher of the law approached him. You speak the way of God accurately, and you're not swayed. Like, if we were to imitate and really embody Jesus, I think Portland would be transformed. I think our personal lives would be transformed. But our transformation is always for the sake of others. That's where what we do is different from those life coaches. And shout out to everyone in here who's a life coach. I appreciate you. Life coaches try to help you get the best out of your life. We want to be transformed for the sake of others. Like that, that's the core of our spiritual formation, for the sake of others. Because we've already been saved, we've already been redeemed, we're being saved, we're being redeemed, but our transformation becomes a powerful testimony to the world around us. And so, there's a phrase in, we're not going to go there, but there's a phrase in Philippians chapter 2 where it says, Christ emptied himself, and then he continued to empty himself, continued to empty himself. In order to be who God wants us to be, we have to empty ourselves. The, the Greek word is kenosis. You have to empty yourself. There's a proverb that my mother-in-law always says, you can't fill a, a cup that's already full. Like if Christ is gonna transform us and turn us into, we have to empty, we have to leave room for Christ to change us. And I think that gets more challenging the longer we've been walking with Jesus. Or we're like, there's no more room, I already got it figured out. Young Christians, you know, Anthony probably take anything as gospel right now. He just got baptized a couple of days ago. Preferably, he doesn't get deceived. But the longer we've been following, the harder it is to be transformed. And so I want to ask you guys, in what area can you invite God's work in your life? And, 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 and I want to kind of, let me just add this before we, we open it up for more discussion. I think one of the hardest challenges for many of us is... And when we think of doing the will of God and the work of God, we always think addition instead of intentionality. We always think, okay, how do I fit that? Where do I add that in my schedule? Jesus, so far as we see, had no schedule that he printed for everyone else to imitate, right? Like he, he's the king of interruptibility. You could just burst into his life and he could meet your need. He's sensitive to that. But Jesus was radically intentional. When he went over Simon's house and a woman just weeps on his feet, he knew how to turn to her and connect. And he pulled out a story out of the air. 500 denarii, you owe 50 denarii, who's awesome? He who loves, blah, blah, blah. He was able to do that. And so I think a lot of times when we're looking at our schedules, where can we be more intentional? I'm going to poke at an idol. 
But just understand, I did, I'm doing this because I prayed about it. So I could be dead wrong, but I prayed about it. And I told God, help me not say it. And obviously I'm going to say it, so that means God wanted me to say it. That's how I'm reasoning in it in my head. I think sometimes when it comes to having people in our lives, especially those of us with families, we protect that family so much we can't even invite other people into our lives, so we always have little to no time. We have to open up ourselves to allow people into our lives, and I'm talking about myself as well. Like, I'm like, man, I wish I could hang out with the Connors more often. And then Jules and I are sitting in the living room Thursday, 5 p.m., we're about to do dinner. Why couldn't the Connors be here? Stephen isn't going to be offended. He's going to show them his dinosaurs. <laughs> He's going to be like, I got several. Let me show these guys this. I have to be intentional. While when, when they're not here, I could just listen to Julian after she talks for like 15 minutes. I'm like, yeah, this is great. All right. I wonder how the Bengals are going to do in the Super Bowl. But if they're there, now i got to be really, really, really invested, which exposes my heart a little bit. <laughs> I love talking to Jules. I do. But sometimes we talk all the time, so I know what she's going to say. But are we opening up space for that? Those of us with kids, some of us were so busy. And I don't think COVID is a legitimate excuse. I think we have screens now. You can open up the screen and say, hey, we're going to get 21st century on you. You're going to have dinner where you are. I'm going to have dinner where I am. And we're going to crank it out here, and we're going to connect. But what are some different ways we can um, do the ministry of Jesus, guys? And if I affected your idol, that's good. That's the Holy Spirit working, I think. And if it's not, amen. I think, I think just, like, consider others better than yourself. Because it's so easy, um, and I think now being back in the workforce and just seeing the world and everybody's consumed with things like that, but being really intentional and remembering when people open up about or someone's birthday. I know people say, oh, Bob, you always send cards. But I think when a baby's born, everybody's all excited. And then when that baby turns 50, Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think evangelism in 2022 is going to require 95% listening. I, I, I sincerely believe that. I think we have to listen long enough. I don't know how long is long. Listen long enough to be able to share good news into their life. Because a lot of times they don't know what the good news they're missing out on. But we have our spill and we're, we're like, professional car salesman, so we're like, you better come and get connected, but I think we're, we're, we're moving in a place where we really have to learn to listen, and Jesus did that really well. Anyone else? What, what are some things we could do to imitate the ministry of Jesus? I wish I wrote that down.
Lindsay, and then Barb. Barb the Fred. talking to a lot of millennials. Good, good thought. And then Irene. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophet hang on those two commands. Hey, yep, that's the one. Sounds about right. The, the entire law is summed up in this one thing. Fire it up, fire it up. Irene. Yeah, I think Jesus really saw people 
You're talking about even within or outside or both? Both. Gotcha. Within the church and, and outside. Mm. It just really, you know, and I'm, I'm including myself. Mm -hmm. Powerful. No, I appreciate you sharing that. That I think that uh, the the idea that seeing people for who they are is to really restore the image of God in the person. That's really hard sometimes, especially when people start to talk. Yeah. You're like, oh gosh. <laughs> but you're like, you're image bearer, regardless of what you share. <laughs> but sometimes people can be challenging. So I appreciate that. That uh, Lincoln, and then you're gonna. Okay, you could you could bring us home, Chanel. So Lincoln and Chanel. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to share about Irene in our neighborhood. It's like, um, so we, we found out that a, a couple a couple houses down are we're gonna have a baby, and we've never even met the wife, and Irene's gonna make her make her like a little hat. Come on. There, and, you know, Irene made food for her other next door neighbor, and you know, I mean, we're slowly developing relationships that, that way, and I, I think just chipping away. That's one thing I want to share. And then the other thing that I've really been working on is just trying to be a blessing. Mm. Just to be a blessing to the people I work with. And so it's like a million little things, uh, you know, holding doors open and talking and smiling. Yeah. And, um, you know, and it's, it's starting, like, there was a lady to today at work that just happened to mention that like a 14-year-old daughter that she's had a lot of her, her big challenge in life is her daughter's cutting herself, right? Wow. Yeah, you can imagine what, what that's like. So, so I've been thinking about how I can, you know, just show some empathy, you know, so show caring and, and maybe ask her about it. And, you know what I mean? But just, um, so I think little opportunities will, will come up. I, I think a lot of times, we, you know, we have to them and take advantage. And I think Fred made a really good point. It takes courage. 
even even like giving a little hat to a lady she's never met. I, I don't totally know how that's going to go, right? So it takes courage, but I, I think it's going to go really well. So. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, appreciate that thought, Chanel. Great thought. So one announcement before we end. So Lincoln is doing the work with Snake Creek. Yeah, Long Creek. Yes. Yes. So if you're interested in that, please, it'd be a great opportunity to be a blessing to our community. Um, and he's spearheading it. And it's a task force that'll work for us to partner with, with the um with the young men in the juvenile detention, is the young and women as well? As well. Yeah, Among other things as well. So yes, please continue. If you don't have his number, get his number. Are you okay with me giving out your number? If someone texts me, okay, cool. Got to get permission in the church, man. Uh, but yeah, so that is our, our our class together. Good night, guys.